Well, I thought I'd start off with uh, a bit of a, a game, I guess, but it's going to have to just be up here. I don't want you to shout anything out because there may be people here with whom you have relationships and it may not go well for you. But we'll do a, we'll do a bit of a multiple choice. So let's start off with your job. So when you think of your job, or if you're a student, just think of your schooling. How, to what degree do you love your job? So on one hand, option A would be, I absolutely adore my job. And then there'd be those that would say, I wouldn't maybe go that far, but I love my job. Others, I'm fine with my job. Others, I mildly dislike my job. Others, I hate my job. Others, I want to die every time I go to my job. So how would you, just in your mind, how would you rate your appreciation for your job? And then you could take that same scale, if you were daring enough, and apply it to your marriage. Then you could take that same scale, if you were daring enough, and apply it to your church. You could take that same scale and apply it to your appreciation for the country you live in, and on and on and on. And unless you're one of those unique people, and there are a few around, one of those unique people that are always absolutely and perpetually optimistic, most of us would probably say, well, there's nothing really in life that's absolutely and always perfect. My life is filled with highs and lows, with ups and downs, whether it's church life or family life or school or marriage or my vocation. All of life has highs and lows attached to it. And I understand that. I live in a fallen world. This isn't heaven yet. And life has some highs and lows attached to it. Well, the same is true of ministry. So we've been studying the book of Acts. And in the book of Acts, we've been encouraged, especially in the last three or four chapters, to get out of our comfort zones and preach the gospel far and wide, which is what Peter did and Paul did and Barnabas did and John did. They actually got out of their comfort zones, burned some calories, spent some money, and went to places and reached people for Christ. And we should do the same. But in the process of doing ministry, there will be ups and downs. There will be highs and lows. But the wonderful thing we will see in Acts 13 is that God even takes the downs, the lows, and they're all part of his purpose to bring about some pretty cool highs. So God has the ability to redeem the difficulties of ministry, the challenges of ministry, the persecution that you might experience in ministry, the pushback, the misunderstanding, and the personal attacks to win more people to Christ. So this is really a, a message about our perspective in many ways. If we have this perspective, if we learn to expect or anticipate that ministry will be difficult at times, it's much easier to, to push through it with some perspective on what God is ultimately going to accomplish through it. So let's, let's just ask this question to get us going. What can I expect when I preach the gospel? So join me in Acts 13. We're going to study verses 13 to 52. And the first thing that you might expect when you preach the gospel is there are going to be times when people approach you and ask you about the gospel, as you would understand it. They may not know that word. There's going to be times when you're welcome, when you're invited, when you're at the proverbial water cooler and someone says, hey, aren't you a church guy? Tell me about that. I understand you're a Christian. What does that mean? You'll be invited into the conversation. And the apostles had experiences like that. They didn't have to always push on the doors. The doors sometimes just swung open for them. Check this out. 
Now, Paul and his companions set sail from Paphos and came to Perga in Pamphylia. And John left them and returned to Jerusalem. Remember, John had joined Paul and Barnabas to expand their ministry because they had a lot going on. Well, now he has his own assignment to tend to. But they went on from Perga and came to Antioch and Pisidia. Now, you might be thinking, I don't even know where these places are and I don't really care. Why are they even in the Bible? Well, they are part of the broader narrative helping us to see, we could look at a map and pinpoint how the gospel, as Jesus had commanded them to go out into all the world, the gospel was now expanding and taking root in various territories. And the people of God were taking seriously their task to go and tell, not wait for people to come to them. So the gospel is being spread out into Gentile territories. Some of those territories had Jewish synagogues in them, which was a prime place to often start because of the natural culture and the religious affinity. But then we have this event. And on the Sabbath day, they went into the synagogue and sat down. So they're passive observers. After reading from the law and the prophet, the rulers of the synagogue sent a message to them saying, brothers, if you have any word of encouragement for the people, say it. So Paul stood up and motioned with his hand and said, before we see what he said, we could all agree so far, so good. They're in the synagogue. They've been invited to say a few things. We could probably predict that Paul's going to speak the truth. We maybe have experiences like that that we could point to in our own experiences. You're at the family gathering. You bump bump into Uncle Bob that's not a Christian. And he's like, hey, how are things going at the church? And you have a natural opportunity to bridge into a conversation. Again, someone on your sports team says, uh, Why don't you play on Sundays? Well, I I go to church. Well, tell me about your beliefs. So, so far, so good. Most people in Canada are cool with those sort of surfacey questions about religion and spirituality. Hey, do you want to maybe share a little bit with me? Tell me a little bit about what you believe. No problem. But when they hear what you preach, their feigned tolerance may soon dissipate, evaporate, be gonzo. Before we look at that response, though, what is the substance of our preaching to entail? So if we're going to preach the gospel faithfully, what are some of the key things we want to touch on? Well, Paul's sermon is instructive. And we're going to start, he's going to start his sermon, as we should start our gospel, with a reminder about who Jesus is. And this is where from the beginning of gospel proclamation, there is some offense involved because fundamental to the gospel are two things about Jesus Christ. Number one, his kingship. Number two, the fact that he's your savior, which means you need to be saved, which implies you're a sinner. So Christ as king and savior, the world is totally fine with a passive Christ. They're totally fine with a Christ among all the gods kind of Jesus. They're totally fine with the Jesus that just shows up now and again and whispers sweet nothings in your ears and offers a nugget of proverbial wisdom or loves you dearly. But when you start to lean in and preach that Christ is King of Kings and Lord of Lords, and in fact, he's your savior, you can expect for people to start to shift in their seats and to push back a little bit. 
And this is exactly what happens. Men of Israel and you who fear God, meaning Jews and Gentiles. We know that because later on the Gentiles that are listening will respond to the message. Men of Israel and you who fear God, listen, the God of this people, Israel chose our fathers and made the people great during their stay in the land of Egypt. And with uplifted arm, he led them out of it. And for about 40 years, he put up with them in the wilderness And after destroying seven nations in the land of Canaan, he gave them their land as an inheritance. All this took about 450 years. And after that, he gave them judges until Samuel the prophet. And then they asked for a king and God gave them Saul, the son of Kish, a man of the tribe of Benjamin for 40 years. And when he had removed him, he raised up David to be their king of whom he testified and said, I have found in David, the son of Jesse, a man after my heart who will do all my will. Pause. Very briefly, Paul surveys the life of the old covenant people of God from the time of the covenant through the captivity in Egypt, wandering in the wilderness, the conquering of the promised land, the time of the judges, the time of the first king who was Saul, And then finally comes to David, the Davidic king. Now the Jews knew, if they studied scripture, that God's Messiah would come from the genealogical line of David. He would be a Davidic king from the tribe of Judah. So Paul outlines the history of Israel in very brief, just a few sentences here. And his purpose is to get them thinking about the Messiah. This is why he ends with David and comments on David's choice status with God. So notice how, having said that now, he bridges the gap into the point of the message, which is the identity of Jesus. This is where he wants to take them. He wants people to understand the identity of Jesus. Of this man's offspring, God has brought to Israel a savior. Who? Jesus, as he promised Before his coming, John had proclaimed a baptism of repentance to the people of Israel. And as John was finishing his course, he said, what do you suppose that I am? I am not he, no, but behold, after me is coming, one is coming, the sandals of whose feet I am not worthy to untie. So he recalls the Exodus events. He discusses the kingly structures of Israel And he finally points us to Jesus Christ. And there's two things that Paul wants to drive home in his presentation of the gospel. Number one, the kingly status of Jesus Christ as the rightful Davidic king. Meaning, and you and I, let's say we never really studied the scripture. It may not be as obvious to us, but the Jewish listener would have heard this. He's saying Jesus is the Messiah. That's the point of the message. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've all been looking for who would reveal the kingdom of God. And secondly, he's also our savior. One could say then that in accentuating his Davidic lineage, he's highlighting the rightful status of Jesus as a human being to lay claim to the throne of Israel. And by highlighting his role as savior and sin conqueror, which he will articulate more momentarily. He's highlighting and starting to emphasize his his divinity. 
He then appeals to John the Baptist. This is the John that's being referred to in verse 25, who was one of the, one of the respected most recent prophets of Israel, also happened to be Jesus' first cousin. And he uses the words of John to affirm the superiority of Jesus Christ over all the prophets. So he picks kind of the last prophet that everyone knew. And that prophet, in a certain sense, speaking for all the prophets that had come before him, takes Jesus and elevates him to a status that is distinct from all the prophets that had come before him. Now, when you preach the gospel and you preach the messianic status of Jesus Christ, whether you use those words or not is, is not my, my concern right now, but with the, when you preach that Jesus Christ is God's long-awaited one, the savior of the world, he's fully man and fully God, and when you say to prime ministers and premiers and presidents of companies and people who consider themselves the masters of their own fate and the captains of their own souls, which frankly is every human being prior to salvation, we are hyper autonomous. We love to self-govern. When you say, hey, do you know what? Jesus Christ is your king. Jesus Christ is your king. Jesus Christ is your Lord. You need to be saved. Jesus Christ is the savior. You need to be saved from your sin. That is, to the natural man, an incredibly offensive gospel. But you know what? If you don't get there, you never actually get to the gospel. So we must preach the identity of Jesus Christ as king of kings and Lord of lords. And this is why we preach it even, even in the public realm not just in the ecclesia, but we preach it in the public realm to the world, that Jesus Christ is King of Kings. That is the essence of the declaration. He's not just King of the pastors of the church. He is King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Secondly, we preach Christ's death and resurrection, which is alluded to in the next cluster of verses. Paul goes on to preach it straight up. Brothers, sons of the family of Abraham, and those among you who fear God, to us has been given the message of this salvation for those who live in Jerusalem and their rulers because they did not recognize him nor understand the utterances of the prophets, which I read every Sabbath. Talk about a backhanded rebuke, slap. You've heard it over and over again. You still don't get it. Fulfilled them by condemning sin. So this, is, this sets us up as readers for a bit of a prediction as to what's going to come. So now he's starting to step on some toes. He's starting to get a little personal here. He's starting to push at their pride, at their ignorance, at their lack of understanding. It goes on to say, and though they found in him no guilt worthy of death, they asked Pilate to have him executed. Talk about a could you think of a more heinous act than to deliberately participate in the public execution of a man you know right well as innocent? So now he's really stepping on toes. And when they had carried out all that was written of him, they took him down from the tree and laid him in a tomb, but God raised him from the dead. And for many days, he appeared to those who had come up with him from Galilee to Jerusalem, 
who are now his witnesses to the people. And we bring you the good news that what God promised to the fathers, this he has fulfilled to us, their children, by raising Jesus, as also it is written in the second Psalm. The second Psalm, if you haven't read it recently, I'd commend it to you. It's a wonderful reminder of the Lordship of Jesus Christ over all things. He quotes in the second Psalm, you are my son, today I have begotten you. By the way, the word begotten doesn't mean birthed. We do believe in a virgin birth. In his humanity, he was birthed from Mary. But begotten is essentially to be of the same essence as. So I might say, well, I have sons. There's Josiah and Simon and Levi. I'd say I have, I have sons, but this is not a proper understanding of the relationship between the father God and God the son. But rather, while there are, they are two distinct, we covered this in our sermon series on theology, while, while they are distinct persons, they are of the same essence. So when the, when the reader hears this, he's hearing, he should hear an affirmation in part of the divinity of Jesus Christ, which again helps us to understand who he is. And then there's another emphasis on his kingly status. So notice he's, he's, he's defending and building the, the, the uh, identity of Jesus, so his divinity. And as for the fact that he was raised from the dead, no more to return to corruption, he has spoken in this way, I will give you the holy and sure blessings of David. So again, affirming his Davidic status as king. And then verse 35, therefore he says also in another Psalm, you will not let your Holy One see corruption. In part, this affirms his eternality, that he's not susceptible to death as we are. He did die, but he conquered it. So Jesus is God, Jesus is King, Jesus is eternal in nature. Now this passage in and of itself doesn't exclusively articulate all of our theology about Christ but it certainly affirms what we see in the broader corpus of scripture, that Jesus is these things. Verse 36, for David, after he had served the purpose of God in his own generation, fell asleep. So now he's going to compare and contrast the first Davidic king to the second Davidic king and the superiority of the second Davidic king over the first Davidic king because the first Davidic king died and stayed dead. The second Davidic king died and was resurrected. For David, after he had served the purposes of God in his own generation, fell asleep and was laid with his fathers and saw corruption, meaning death. But he whom God raised up did not see corruption. So this whole message is about the identity of Jesus, Jesus conquering of sin, Jesus kingly status, Jesus authority, the nature of Jesus. And having articulated well the, the nature of Jesus, we now have some evidence as to the work of Jesus, namely Christ's forgiveness for sins. Let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that though this man, through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. By the way, in order to be forgiven of sins, that implies what? You're a sinner. I'm a sinner. I, need to be, I have transgressed something. What have I transgressed? God's laws, God's word, what God has said. Jesus offers forgiveness for that. And by him, everyone who believes is freed from everything, 
from which you could not be freed by the law of Moses. The law of Moses was a blessing and benefit to the people of God and frankly still is. The law of Moses serves, among other things, to restrain evil in civilization, in nations. It serves to remind us of God's standards. It serves to keep things together like marriages and outline and define the nature of parent-child relationships or leaders among God's people and God's people, the, the nature of those relationships. It has many benefits to it, but it does not have the capacity to save you because there's a law that you've been made aware of. You'll also be aware that you've often failed to fulfill God's law, which means you and I are sinners. So only Jesus could perfectly fulfill God's law. And by the way, in order for Jesus to fulfill God's law, he had to obey God's law, which means that Jesus wasn't an antinomian. Jesus wasn't opposed to law. Jesus wasn't, oh, oh, law is bad. Jesus fulfilled the law, the righteous requirements of God's law to affirm the fact that that law was in fact good, but also knowing that you don't have the capacity and I don't have the capacity to fulfill it apart from divine grace. And by doing so, he's freed us from the law of Moses. Beware therefore, lest what is said in the prophets should come about. So now he quotes from the prophets and he starts to step on some more toes. Look, you scoffers, be astonished and perish. For I am doing a work in your days, a work that you will not believe, even if one tells you. God's laws are not bad. Many in the modern church have this weird notion. We're just into grace. We just love grace. We don't love law. We don't like law. Law is bad. Law is, God made a mistake with the law or it's completely obsolete or it's all for naught. That's not our, that's not a proper view of God's laws. Again, God's laws, especially as they pertain to how you interact with human beings, aren't necessarily specifically for Christians or for the church. The Bible says, thou shalt not murder. That's not a church law. That's a law for all people in all contexts everywhere. That's a law that every nation should acknowledge. If you want a properly ordered society, you can't let people just go around murdering other people. That's not a Christian law. That's a law for all people. But of course, people murder. They murder with their hands. They murder, they have, they have murderous thoughts. God's laws restrain evil and they are to be obeyed. The very fact that you need law suggests that you're apt to break God's law and that's enough to condemn you. So f suppose for a moment that um, your parents were hyper-grace Christians and they had this notion that, you know, the law is obsolete. We don't, we don't preach the law. We don't teach the law. We don't, we don't talk about oughts and ought nots to our children. So they just kind of had a completely rule-free home. You grew up in a rule-free home. You never heard an ought. You never heard an ought not. You never heard a don't do that, do this. You never heard any law articulated to you. And then suppose you, you moved through life and you became an adult and someone said to you, um, do you know you're a sinner? How could you possibly comprehend what sin is if you had no category for rightness and wrongness? 
How, how could you possibly understand the need for grace or mercy if you had no category in your mind to even define right and wrong, what we should be doing or shouldn't be doing, what we should be looking at or shouldn't be looking at, what we should be saying or shouldn't be saying. In fact, by not preaching law, you wouldn't be able to comprehend grace. You wouldn't be able to comprehend salvation. You wouldn't be able to comprehend mercy. You'd have no category for it. So we preach the law. We preach rights and wrongs, do's and don'ts. We don't believe, as some false religions might teach, that you have the capacity to perfectly obey them, even though you still should. Nor do we teach that those laws are there to perfect you because we know you still have a sin nature. Nor do we teach that those laws are just church laws. Now, there are some church laws, okay, like gathering together regularly, Hebrews 10.25, the nature of eldership, the nature of communion, the nature of church discipline. These are laws for God's people, which we don't spend time enforcing in the public realm. But there are also laws that apply to all people everywhere, about the sanctity of life, murder, perjuring yourself in court. Okay, that's, a, that's not a law for the church. We don't run courts. That's a law for nations. So there are certain laws that apply to the church. There are certain laws that apply to all nations. But all of these laws, none of them save. And we don't go out and try to moralize the world thinking that if we can just, if we just clean up Canada and get all the laws right, everybody's going to heaven. Some people have falsely accused us of teaching that message. It's not our message at all. But there are laws that apply to civil government. There are laws that apply to nationhood. And all of those laws, both church laws and public laws, marital laws and whatnot, when we do break them, remind us of our need for a savior. That we have actually offended the king of kings and the Lord of lords. By the way, when Jesus calls himself king of kings and Lord of lords, you know what he's making? A political statement. That's a political statement. It's also a theological statement. But it's a political statement. It's a statement directed at civil leaders. That I am your king. I am your Lord. It's like we don't get political. Oh, you don't preach that Jesus Christ is king of kings and Lord of lords? That's a political statement. And this is why Nero hated early Christians and had them executed in his arenas. This is why various tyrants throughout history that were confronted by the Christian church would take them, have them put to death, have them gassed, have them hung, have them dismembered in public because they knew this wasn't just about how to get to heaven. This was about authority and who has authority. In fact, if you think about it, every sin fundamentally is about a rejection of authority. Every sin. Every sin is a rejection of authority. Whenever we sin directly against God and disobeys his, disobey his word, we are saying, I will not submit to my king. And then even sins in relationships. If a child says, I will not listen to you, mom, that's a breach of authority. If a wife says, I will not submit to my husband, that's a breach of authority. If a congregation says, I will not submit to the eldership, that's a breach of authority. If a citizen says, I will not submit to the king, that is a breach of authority. Now, 
Having said all that, we know that husbands have limited authority. Parents have limited authority. Pastors have limited authority. Kings have limited authority. They don't have absolute authority. They're not the king of kings and lord of lords. But they do have limited authority. And when they are functioning within their limited authority, the person who's under them has a responsibility to obey. So both personal sins committed against one another and against God, and of course, they're inextricably linked, all sin is a violation of authority. And this is why in our churches, we need to preach a robust theology about authority, about the authority of Christ and about the authority of human, in, in human relationships that govern human relationships, lest we all become anarchists and rebels without a cause. So here we have Jesus speaking through Paul and reminding these early Jews that they had fumbled the ball, that they had rejected the one that could alone forgive them of their sins. Now, before we go any further, let's look at two, two responses that they receive. And I think we probably would see these in our own uh, evangelistic endeavors. So the first response is a receptive audience. So when you preach the gospel, sometimes you're going to get a receptive response. People are going to be like, yeah, yeah, I like this. Give me more. Tell me more. I'm interested. As they went out, the people begged. That's a strong word. They begged that these things might be told them the next Sabbath. They were hungry to come back for more preaching. And after the meeting of the synagogue broke up, many Jews and devout converts to Judaism followed Paul and Barnabas, who, as they spoke with them, urged them to continue in the grace of God. Like this is every preacher's dream, right? Hey, tell me more. I can't wait till next Sunday. So this means the Lord is working in these people's lives. They're receptive. They're, they're fields that are ripe unto harvest, you could say. And it's a, it's a wonderful thing to see the, the intensity of their interest. But then also there's the jealous opponents. So this is the second group. The next Sabbath, almost the whole city gathered to hear the word of the Lord. And when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy. Now we know what their motive is. And they began to contradict what Paul was spoken by Paul, reviling him. Notice there's two, there's two ways to get attacked when you're preaching the gospel. They attack your content and they attack your person. That's, that's, the, that's the, uh, the MO, the mode of operation. The modus operandi, that's how they operate. They will, you will get attacked and your message will get attacked. So it's, it's tempting to take it personally, but not if you sort of assume and expect that's what's going to happen. It's really not all that personal. They may be personalizing it, but that's, that's what people do that don't want to hear a message. They will try to undermine the message and they will try to undermine the messenger. That's, that's a tactic that's been replayed time and time again throughout uh, human history. They don't care about, they're not going to pay much attention to you if you're mousy and quiet. So if we just stay in our churches and keep our voices down and don't step on toes and don't confront power and just maybe once every couple of years baptize someone, I can guarantee you can fly under the radar for generation after generation after generation as a church and you'll have no problem. But as soon as you start to declare the Lordship of Jesus Christ, as soon as you start to have full baptistries, 
As soon as you start to assert the full gospel of Jesus Christ into the public realm, your message will be attacked and you will be attacked. But life is a lot about managing expectations. And if you just expect it, then it's not that hurtful. And it's sort of something that we expect. And in part, I think this message is, is about managing expectations and just prepping us for the fact that's normal. That's normal. The Bible says, interestingly, beware when all men speak well of you. Isn't that interesting? Beware if everybody likes you. If everybody likes you, there's a problem, in other words. If everybody likes you and you're a Christian, it's probably because you're a mousy, shy, quiet, cowardly Christian. Now, you don't need to be offensive in your personality, but the message of the cross is offensive, but it's also beautiful and it's redemptive. So we must preach it. Christianity is okay with most people. I've talked to all kinds of people in my life, shared the gospel with all kinds of people from all walks of life. And if they just sort of see me as a, you know, a religious salesman, they don't care. Always oh, a clergyman, whatever. He has his own church. Good for you. Glad you got a good job. But as soon as you start to press in and unpack the essence of the gospel, that's when you start to see, you know, eyebrows go up. People start to step back. Phone calls not return, whatever it might be. Jesus Christ is not a way, a truth, and a life, is he? He's the way, the truth, the life. There's a definite article there. The way, the truth, the life. And that's offensive. So those are a couple of responses that we should expect. Some people are going to be interested and invite you back. Some people are going to say, buzz off. I don't want to hear from you. Or they'll start to call you names and revile you. But we do see Christ's heart for the nations. So remember earlier when we started off the message, I talked about the highs and lows and how God redeems the, the lows for highs. Well, and this is what we're going to see now. And that Christ uses the reviling and the contradictions to win more people to to himself. And we see here then Christ's heart for the nations. And Paul and Barnabas spoke out boldly saying, it was necessary that the word of God be spoken first to you. Since you thrust it aside and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, which is a little tongue in cheek. It's like, well, if you don't want to get saved then, if you're not interested in eternal life, clearly you're not. If you don't want to hear it, okay, not going to force it on you. Behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us saying, I have made you a light to the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the ends of the earth. So even in the reviling and the contradictions, God already has a plan. I think this is a good reminder to us. You're persecuted. It's not going well. People are pushing back. Family members are abandoning you. You're being called names, whatever it might be. In the moment, it can be painful. But if you kind of look beyond the moment and through the eyes of faith, see where God might be leading this, leading the conversation, it allows you to persevere. And then, of course, on the other side of it, it's always 2020 vision, right? Like, oh, that's what God was doing. That's what God was doing. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life, there's a little reformed theology there for you. If you don't like the doctrine of God's sovereignty and salvation, you better scratch this one out of your Bible. As many who were appointed to eternal life believed, 
And the word of the Lord was spreading throughout the whole region. So God still has his way. For centuries, the Jews had been special recipients of God's grace and they had awaited their Messiah. But when he came, they didn't recognize him. They were ignorant. They were dead in their trespasses and sins, we could say, if we use New Testament language. Did that stop God? Nope. God's fuller intention is now revealed in that that which was entrusted to them now goes global. Does that mean that everyone there changes their mind and says, okay, well, if the Gentiles believe you can stay in town and preach and set up a church? No, they actually drive them out of town. But even then, they don't lose heart. But the Jews incited the devout women of high standing and the leading men of the city, stirring up persecution against Paul and Barnabas. They drove them out of their district. But they shook the dust off their feet against them and went on to Iconium. And the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit, which also implies the Holy Spirit affirmed that choice to shake the dust off their feet and move on. So when you shake the dust off your feet, it wasn't like, oh, I got some uh, dirt. It's kind of clogging up the treads in my shoes. It was a, a sign of saying, then we will have nothing to do with you. We're not even going to take a fleck of dust from your city with you. We will forget you. And this is a message of condemnation then to this city. If you don't want Jesus, we're moving on. And there's consequences to that. So I suspect that some of you are now starting to think, okay, so what do I do on a personal level? So I have a relative, I have someone I really love. I've been praying for them for years. I've shared the gospel with them more times than I can count. And they're just not interested, but I keep praying. Every time I see them, I share the gospel, but they're never interested. Is that the right thing to do? Or should I shake the dust off my feet and move on? Well, part of it is a matter of discernment. Okay? Part of it is a matter of discernment. If the Lord, for whatever reason, continues to lay someone on their heart, on your heart, there's nothing wrong with persevering in the proclamation of the gospel. But I can also tell you this. But sometimes it's a distraction to God's true ministry purposes for you. If you're involved in a ministry of evangelism, you're sharing the gospel, and it's just that one person over and over and over and over again, and years are rolling by, maybe decades, is it possible that maybe it's time for you to shake the dust off your feet and to look around you at the fields that are ripe for harvest? Now, if somehow you're Superman and you can balance both, have at it. But we only have so, many so much time to put into ministry. And we often, I think, feel like guilty that if there's an opportunity, that means we're the one called to meet it. And that's not true. Just because there's an opportunity doesn't mean you're the one called to meet it. Just because someone needs Christ doesn't mean you're the person that God's going to use to lead them to Christ. A person who has habitually and consistently rejected the gospel might actually be a distraction for you. So you're not actually looking around at the people God has put in your path. So there needs to be some spirit-led discernment here. But don't feel guilty if you come to the conclusion, look, I've done everything I can. I've prayed the prayers. I've had the conversations time and time again. They're clearly not interested. It's time for me to move on. And the Holy Spirit can even affirm that choice as he did with Paul and Barnabas in this particular situation. Sometimes it's just not going to turn out well, and we have to move on. Well, if we look at this entire portion, we're reminded that 
As I mentioned earlier, life is a lot about managing expectations. If you have a, a pretty good idea about what to expect entering into marriage, it's a lot easier to manage it. If you have a pretty good idea about what's expected of you in ministry, it's a lot easier to do it well. If you have a pretty good idea about what your job description is at work, it's easier for you to fulfill the obligations. And in the same way, if you have a pretty good idea about what ministry's like, you're going to save yourself a lot of bitterness and a lot of heartache. And so in terms of our mental approach to ministry, what we need to do is to expect persecution more regularly and not let it rattle our cages so much or throw us off. It's like, the world hates us. Who would have ever thought? This guy called me a name. I can't believe it. You should expect it, anticipate it. It's going to happen. The proclamation of the gospel will end relationships and it will start new relationships. I can guarantee you that. It will end relationships and it'll position you to start new ones. There may be times when you might lose territory. In this case, we could say like geographical territory or even just relationships. And you might need to move on or reposition yourself in ministry, but there's lots of places and people to minister to. Finally, when we preach the gospel, let's make sure we get the gospel right. We need to declare the identity of Jesus Christ. We need to declare the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ and the fact that forgiveness alone is found in his name. And then we just breathe easy and let God do what only God can do because God is sovereign over salvation. So let's choose to be faithful as these early apostles were faithful and allow God to use us as he sees fit. 